All right, we're in John chapter 7, we're in verses 1 through 10 this morning, and we should recap, because it's been a while since we've been in John. And plus, it says right at the beginning of John chapter 7, it says, it might say something different in your translation, but in mine it says, after this. And some of your translations may say, after these things. So we should do a recap, because after what, right? After what things? Well, basically, John chapter 6, after those things, which we spent like three weeks going through at least. And uh, so you had the feeding of the 5,000. We actually spent four weeks going through John chapter 6. So, so you had the feeding of the 5,000, you had the walking on the water, and then more specifically, it's probably referring to the um, discussion that Jesus had with the crowd that followed him. Um, after he went across, right? Jesus walked across the water. The disciples went across on the boat. So more specifically, it's probably talking about the crowds. And remember, when the crowds showed up, uh, John 6, verse 15, Jesus said, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, right? Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And then he also sent the disciples across the water. So Jesus already understood the intentions of the crowd, that the intentions weren't correct, right? The crowds were searching for Jesus to impose their will upon Jesus. Like, we have a plan for Jesus. We know what we want to do with him, and, and we want to force him to become someone that, you know, we want him to be. We're going to force him to become this earthly, worldly king that we want him to be. And of course, Jesus perceived this. He understood the problem. And and we understand it. You can't make Jesus king in that way. I mean, he's already king. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. He was king before any of these people in the crown were even in the crowd were even born. You know, they need to accept him for for who he is, not try to make him some sort of version of what they want, right? So you can't make Jesus king. You can't put him on the throne. The reason you can't take and put Jesus on a throne, and there's a lot of problems with it, obviously, but one of the reasons that you can't take, I mean, think of politics today, all right? Just think of politics today really quick. Those who get placed on a throne, quote unquote, are in debt or beholden to those who placed them on the throne, all right? Many politicians today are in office, even in the White House, because somebody else got them there, not because of their own merit, because someone else had the money to buy it out, to win the election, to do whatever it took to get them into the office. And because of that, they are now that person's puppet. And there are many politicians in office today who have to do the bidding, not of the people, but of, of whoever paid enough money to get them into their spot. And they have to know, hey, we want you to go against party lines. We want you to go against something that you would normally maybe stand up for. We want you to speak, you know, we want you to do this immoral thing. We want you to do this dishonest thing. Well, you need to do it because if you don't, you're going to lose your place of prestige. You're going to lose your place of power. You're beholden to us because we paid the money that got you into the, into that, we got you on that throne. We put you on that throne, right? That's politics, well, you can't put Jesus on the throne of your making. You can't put Jesus in there because what you're trying to do then is say, Jesus is now beholden to me. I put him on that throne. 
I'm not beholden to him. He's beholden to me. Jesus, I need something from you. Jesus, I want you to do this. Jesus, you know, here's all the regions that I want you to be king of. Well, not these over here. How about just this one right here? Right? And so we try to play that same game with Jesus. If we have some sort of strange idea that we took Jesus and put him on the throne. We didn't do that. We can't do that. Jesus knows that. And that's a problem. Right? Which is why he withdrew to pray. Why he sent the disciples. It was a problem for the disciples too. Because they might have even fallen for what the crowd wanted to do. So he sent them across the sea. So it's these things that, you know, chapter 7 picks up after these things. After Jesus went off to pray, after the disciples went across the sea, after the crowds, you know, were trying to find Jesus and they saw that the disciples had gotten to a boat, but they didn't know that Jesus, you know, where Jesus went. And, but yet they get into a boat and they go across the, the lake, they go across the Sea of Tiberias, and then, behold, they find Jesus on the other side. That was quite surprising for them. And, and that's where they get into that big discussion at the end of chapter 6, where Jesus says the first of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, where he says, I am the bread of life. Right? Whoever feeds on my flesh drinks my blood as eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true blood and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I him. That's when he said that statement. That's when he was having that discussion with the crowd, declaring who he was, right? He just kept declaring over and over again. He's drilling the message in. I'm not of this world. I'm different. I didn't originate by man. I am God. And here's what it means to follow me, right? I come from heaven. I am the bread of life. And that was offensive to him. As soon as he said he came down from heaven, as soon as he said that he was from God, as soon as he claimed to be the son of God, as soon as he claimed to be the Messiah, as soon as he told them that they had to drink of his blood and eat of his flesh, that was offensive to him. They didn't like it. These are hard sayings. And as we know from the crowd, many of them turned around, actually verse 66 of chapter 6, oddly enough, right? Many of the crowd turned and walked away from Jesus. So after these things, but remember, what Jesus told them, one of the things that they had a really difficult time with, if you reject me, you're rejecting the Father. Right? That's going back to what Jesus had said previously in John, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent them. And then Jesus said, right, in that same chapter 6, for it is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's saying, for you to put your faith in me, that's the will of the Father. So if you were denying me, you're denying the Father. You're rejecting me, you're rejecting the Father. And of course, that was difficult for them as well. They didn't like that statement either, because they're Jews, who thought they were chosen by God through their natural birth. No, no, we're not rejecting the Father because we're rejecting you. But Jesus says, no, you are because, of course, I'm God the Son. I'm God. So it's after these things. It's after this where we pick up this morning. After that discussion. Right? So we're in John chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, very important. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. 
And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. In verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you'll speak this to us. And I pray, Lord, that we'll open our hearts to what it has to say. And, and the importance of these words and how they can be applied in our life and, and just the beginning of this chapter, which is such an important chapter in the Gospel of John as it switches into the last six months of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And how Jesus and his words cause division. But for a purpose. So we thank you for this and we pray, Lord, that we'll be open to your word and that we will apply it and we will learn from it and we will grow and we will grow closer to you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 7 is divided basically into three sections. And what I mean by that is I'm going to divide it basically into three sections. So it's going to take us three weeks to get through chapter 7. And it's, div- and it's all centers around the Feast of B- the Booth, the Feast of the Tabernacles, also known as Sukkot in the Hebrew. And because there's what we're going to read today is happening before the feast. What we're going to do read next week is happening in the middle of the feast. And what we're going to read on the third week is at the end, the last day, which the feast is a seven day feast, but technically it's an eight day feast. I'm not going to get into all the details. So when we get into the, when we're here a couple of weeks from now going through seven, when it says it's the last day of the feast, it's not the seventh day, it's the eighth day. Anyway, we'll talk more about that when we get there. But it all centers around the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, as it says here. And you want to go to Leviticus chapter 23, it, it's when God you know, insti- instigated and, and passed down all the, all the feasts and uh, instituted, yeah. And the Lord spoke to Moses in Leviticus 23, he said, speak to the people of Israel saying on the 15th day of this seventh month and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. And later in that same uh, chapter, it says, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generation may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The Feast of Booths was a joyous celebration. It was one of the three main, there's a lot of feasts, but it was one of the three great feasts of the Jewish calendar following the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. And it was the Feast of Booths. Right? It was, it was a, like I said, a seven-day celebration. It happened usually in the fall, somewhere between September, September and October. And when families, what they did is they camped out in temporary shelters. And, you can, and I didn't put my picture up, so you can't see it. But let's see if I can do this with my broken computer. And Okay. It's a little difficult to see because, because of how I did it, but those are all booths there behind, and, and this is current, and they're all attached to the houses and out on the streets and stuff like that. That's how they do it today. They actually build the, the booths onto their apartments. Some of them go out and camp in tents and, and stuff like that, but probably back at Jesus' time, they were building these booths out near their houses, or they were even just putting out tents. And it was a reminder to them when they were in the wilderness and when God tabernacled, right? So he put his tent in the midst of their tents. So God tabernacled with Israel. And that's what it's a reminder about. It's a reminder about how God was faithful in that, you know, that 40 years in the wilderness, that 14 day journey that took 40 years for them to actually cross over into Canaan, right? So God's faithfulness to Israel when he tabernacled with them. So this feast required that all devout male Jews should go to Jerusalem, which meant Jesus should go to Jerusalem because it was the feast. 
Now, when we're looking at these verses today, one of the things that you might be asking yourself is, well, it seems that Jesus is being a little dishonest here with his brothers. seems that he's misleading them. They're like, let's go up to the feast. You can perform some miracles and show the people who you truly are. And you're like, and Jesus is like, I'm not going up to the feast. Right? He's supposed to. He's a Jewish male. I'm not going up to the feast. It's not my time. You guys go. And then they go. And then Jesus leaves after they leave and sneaks up by himself at night, right? That's not what's going on. There's a reason. So what we're going to be looking at is what the brothers asked of Jesus and Jesus' reply to his brothers. Because what they asked of him is not as innocent as you think it is. And his reply to them isn't just, you go ahead, I'll come later. It's actually a rebuke. All right? Now, like I said, the feast required that all you know, male Jews should make the pilgrimage. And when they got to Jerusalem, you would find that the temple area was illuminated with large menorahs lit, and that they were symbolizing the pillar of fire that kept the people by night in the desert. But not just that. Also, of the seven days of the feast, what they would do is they would go down to the, to the Pool of Siloam, and they would carry in a golden pitcher up the steps the water, and they would pour it out on the temple each day of the seven days of the feast. That plays into later... A couple of weeks from now, at the end of the chapter, and those steps, by the way, that go from the Pool of Siloam up to the temple in the old city are being restored today. You'll be able to walk those steps completely, not too far from now, if we ever get to go to Israel again, right? So, now, on a side note, before I get too far, there are some people that believe that Jesus himself was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. And that Jesus will return again during the Feast of Tabernacles. Most of the feasts have a, uh, a future implication as far as the Messiah is concerned. And the Feast of Tabernacles is no different. It's looking forward to the return of Messiah. Well, some believe that, Jesus, that John, when, uh, at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 14, when John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Right? And we have seen his glory, glory as the one only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Well, that Greek word that he chose for dwelt is a Greek word that means tabernacle. Right? It's uh, skenao is the Greek. And it means simply, you know, to dwell in a tent. It means tabernacle. So many people think that John chose that word purposefully, right? intentionally, to associate the birth of Christ with the Feast of Booths. I can't say. I know that you know, we celebrate the birth of Christ on December 25th, but most of us know that probably was not the day that Christ was born. Right? Christ came to dwell with us. Emmanuel, God with us, Christ in the flesh. And he's coming again to dwell among us as King of Kings, as Lord of Lords during the millennial reign. So it is significant in that sense. And it could be that the, this Feast of the Booth is looking backwards to his birth and looking forward to his second coming. But again, we're not really going to look at that. What we're going to look at is this conversation between Jesus and his brothers. And yes, Jesus had brothers. When it says brothers, it doesn't mean just brothers in Christ, right? His buddies, some of the disciples. He's just not calling them, hey, brother, right? When it says brother, it's actually referring to his brothers. Jesus had brothers and sisters, right? There is a church, Catholic, that teaches Mary is perpetual virgin, right? But that's not what the Bible teaches. 
The Bible teaches that Mary and Joseph had other children. And we see it in Matthew chapter 13. They say, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Jesus had brothers and Jesus had sisters. Right? And so Jesus is having a conversation in the region of Galilee where he's kind of, I don't want to say he's hiding out, but he's taking a break, right? He's gone to a more safe area, Galilee, not Judea, because why? People are looking to kill him. Why are they looking to kill him? Because he speaks against the evil of the world. We'll talk more about that in just a second. So people are trying to kill him. He doesn't want to hang out in Judea. He's hanging out in Galilee. Galilee is a familiar area for Jesus. It's kind of the region he grew up in. And his brothers are there. And so his brothers are speaking to him. And so they're having this conversation. And we're told right away, just at the beginning, that Jesus, like I said, is not going to go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. But the Feast of the Booths was his hand. So his brothers say to him, his brothers say to him, hey, you should go on up to the feast. Come on, Jesus. We're all supposed to go, Right? leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. There's a lot of important stuff that's in that little section that his brothers said to him right there. And then in verse 5 it tells us, which is the key to everything that we're talking about that, but even his brothers didn't believe in him. If his brothers didn't believe in him, then why are they asking him to go up to Judea? If his brothers know that people are trying to kill him, why are they asking him to go up to Judea? There's a phrase, you've probably heard it. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Right? It's an idiom from the early 1700s. And really all it means is that foolish people are reckless and often attempt to do things that the wise people avoid. Right? And in the case of what we're reading here today, in case you didn't understand, Jesus is the wise person, his brothers are the foolish. All right? But it's not, a, you know, it said that Jesus knew people were trying to kill him, but it's, he's, he, hasn't, he didn't decide not to go with his brothers because of a lack of courage. Jesus isn't afraid to go, right? It was an awareness of his father's timing, okay? It was an awareness of when he was supposed to go as compared to just going, Right? It was an awareness of his father's perfect timing. An understanding, right? he understood what his brothers were asking, but he understood also it was a foolish thing to ask. And he understood more than that. Just hang on. Right? It's a foolish thing to ask if you truly understand the situation and you truly believed in who Jesus was. If his brothers truly understood the situation and truly believed in who Jesus was, they would not have asked him to go up to Judea. But it tells us in verse 5 again, center of everything that we're talking about, his brothers did not believe. So his brothers wanted him to go up to the feast, but yet they didn't believe in him. But you're, you're listening to them ask Jesus to go up, and what, is he, what are they saying? Let me paraphrase what they're saying. They're like, Jesus, you can't be famous if you hide out in Galilee. Right? If you're so great, go up to Judea and prove it to the world. It's a little different statement. 
But that's what they're saying. Now, part of why they're saying this is that the Jews in Jerusalem looked down at the Jews in Galilee. Right? And since Jesus did most of his miracles in the region of Galilee, it gave the religious leaders in Jerusalem another reason to say that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Right? Because he didn't do most of his miracles in front of the right audience. What's the right audience? Well, of course, the religious leaders and the Jews in Jerusalem. So his brothers, there's a quote by Trench that says, his brothers were thinking that his success depended on the world's attitude to him. In other words, they believed in the world rather than Jesus. So they're saying, listen, we don't believe in you, Jesus. But if you really are what you say you are, if you actually do, notice the the words when they're speaking here, if you can do these things, go on up and do it in front of the Jews in Jerusalem and prove it to us, prove it to the world, and maybe we'll believe in you. Do it in front of the right audience. If the world accepts you, Jesus, then maybe we'll accept you. That's what they're asking him. That's what they're asking him. Right? Go prove it in front of the whole world. But here's the thing. Jesus knew when he needed to go. And Jesus knew for what reason he needed to go. And Jesus understood that his brothers had absolutely no clue. Right? Because they did not believe. Jesus is completely submitted to the will of the Father. He's not submitted to his own whims. He's not submitted to his own desires. He's not submitted to anything on his own. Right? It's not his will, but your will, Lord. Right? Whatever you want, Lord. It says that Jesus, t- I mean, it tells us that my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, right? I work when the Father works. He's doing the work of the Father. He's not going to get ahead of him, right? He's not going to rush off headstrong into the breach, as it were. He's going to go in God's perfect time. When, God, when the Father tells me to go, I will go, right? He was on a divine timetable, and you can't rush him, and you can't make him get ahead of the will of the Father, which is what they wanted to do, but they didn't understand why, because again, they did not believe. See what it comes down to? He isn't going anywhere until the father says so. So this is what he tells his brothers. He says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. That's not a compliment. Okay, we'll get into that in just a second. Because what he's telling them is, listen, I'm following a different timetable. I'm doing the will of the Father. It is not my time to go yet. It is not God's will that I go up into Jerusalem. However, you're doing none of, this, none of that. So you can go anytime you like because you're not subject to the will of the Father because you're not following the Father. In other words, your will is to sin and you're ready to sin anytime you want to sin. So go ahead and go. I don't know if they understood that, but I'm pretty sure they did. So he tells them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. Why can't it hate them? Because they're of the world. That's why. The world's not going to hate them because they're of the world. But it hates me, he says, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And another way you can translate it is, it is not the right time for me to go yet. He's not saying he's not going to go. He's saying, it's not the right time for me to go. Or another thing you could be saying is, I'm not going to go with you because your intentions are wrong. And what you want of me is wrong. And it's not going to happen. 
He's, he's telling his brothers, you aren't as obedient to God as I am. Right? You aren't submitted to God's will in the same way. I'm on a different time clock. I'm in a different time zone. I do things entirely different than you do. You, however, are on the world's time clock. You're on your own time clock. You're serving your own master. You're serving yourself. Right? You're always ready to sin so you can go. The world won't hate you because you're out of the world. I'm going to wait until the right time. You go ahead. Right? I'm going to wait until when the circumstances are most suitable. So here's the thing about what his brothers asked of him. Because we can easily read this and just think, hey, they, they were, you know, they're kind of an innocent question. Come on up and prove, you know, do a miracle and come to Jerusalem. It's the feast. You're supposed to show up anyway. But here's the thing of what his brothers were, were actually asking of him. In, in many ways, what his brothers were asking of him was really no different than the people wanting to grab hold of Jesus and force him to become their king. It's like a different side of the same coin. It's wrong intentions. They're asking him to do something that he's not going to do because if they truly understood and believed who he was and why he was here, they wouldn't have asked that of him. If the people truly understood who Jesus was, they wouldn't have wanted to force him to become king. They would have understood he was king and they would have bowed down and worshipped him. His brothers, if they truly understood who he was, wouldn't have asked him to go up to Judea. They wouldn't have needed him to prove anything to anybody for them to believe. They would have, just, they would have already believed. So it's really no different than the people wanting to grab hold of Jesus and by force make him king. But not only that, listen to what his brothers say and the tone in which they're saying it and what it compares to. If you want to know what it compares to, go to Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. What does Satan say to Jesus? I'm not going to go over the whole thing for you, but he says some of the things like this. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. If, if, right? And Satan also says to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. I will put you on a throne, Jesus, if you just worship me. And you compare those statements to what his brothers said. And guess what? They're in the same spirit. They're in the same spirit. Right? What did Jesus reply to Satan? He said, be gone. Satan, right? For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He sent Satan packing. What is he doing for his brothers? He sends them packing. He sends them away. He's like, be gone of you, <laughs> you know, right? You go. His brothers are speaking in, whether they knew it or not, in a demonic spirit to Jesus. Why don't you come up and prove who you are in front of the right people and maybe we'll believe in you. If you can actually do these things. That's what they say, right? If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you are actually who you say you are, we've heard the stories. The brothers didn't hang out with them. They didn't travel with them with the disciples, right? So they may have seen a miracle happen, but for the most part, they probably heard about the miracles happening. And we know that the brothers come to Christ, and we know that happens after his death and resurrection, but right now they're completely unbelievers. 
And so they're like, if you really who you are, say you are, if you can actually do these things, if, 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 go prove yourself. And he's like, be gone. Leave, you go. I'll go when the time is right. Right? They knew his life was in danger. They were telling him to go to the feast anyway. What is that? That's a demonic spirit. What does Satan want to do? He wants to hurt Jesus. Right? So they're like, if you do these things. So you understand the cynicism, the mockery. They were mocking their brother. We don't believe who you are. We don't believe a thing about who you are. You want to prove it to us? Go up to Jerusalem. They're mocking him. They're not asking with any good intentions. They're not doing this, you know, in any other way. They didn't believe Jesus who was who he claimed to be. They didn't believe any of the stories that they'd heard or any of these things, right? They didn't believe. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 6. He said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household which is also somewhat of a fulfillment of a prophetic verse concerning Jesus back in Psalm 69, verse 8, where he says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. Jesus was rejected by his family, by his brothers, possibly by his sisters. You know, there was even one time where his mom showed up and like, pull him out of there, you know? Their faith changed, yes. But at this point, what was Jesus dealing with? He was dealing with rejection from his family, his brothers, who thought probably that he was crazy, right? and they didn't believe a word he said. There was disbelief in his own family. And maybe it was a combination of unbelief and disbelief because they're two separate things. They're not the same thing, Right? Disbelief is the refusal to accept the truth regardless of the facts that are in front of you. Right? We have that going on today worldwide. Right? Here's the truth of what actually happened. Here it is. They are out from their own words now. They're admitting what they did. Here's the truth. We'll lay it out right in front of you. And there's a whole, <laughs> whole population of disbelief that's just going, no, nah, we don't accept it. What do you need? What more do you need? Right? You have it right from their own mouth. Here's what we did and why we're doing it. No, we don't accept it. That's, that's a disbelief. Disbelief is when the truth is, is right in front of you. The evidence is right in front of you. It's laid out and it's irrefutable and you can't argue against it and you look at it and you go, no, I don't accept it. That's disbelief. Unbelief is just a lack of belief. I don't believe. That's unbelief. So you have both, right? Their brothers did not believe, but yet the facts were right in front of them. It was irrefutable. They couldn't deny who Jesus was, but they looked at the facts and they said, no, we don't accept it. We don't accept it. So he had both unbelief and disbelief in his brothers. And Jesus accepted that rejection as a price that he had to pay. Right? And I have to assume it hurt him. He had feelings. He's just like you and me. I have to assume it hurt him to be rejected by his friends and by his neighbors and by his family. But he accepted the rejection regardless. So what Jesus is doing here by telling his brothers, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for it is not the right time yet. That's not deception on Jesus' part. 
He's not lying to his brothers. He's not saying he won't go to the feast. He's saying it is not the right time for me to go to the feast. And if you were serving God, you would understand God's will in this matter. And you would understand that that as well. But because you don't believe, you don't understand that. This was not an act of deception on Jesus' part. This is just Jesus standing firm in the truth and refusing to compromise with the world, refusing to compromise with his own family. That's what Jesus is doing. He's doing exactly what he did when he was, when Satan was tempting him in the desert, right? When the crowds were coming to seize him by force, he's doing exactly what he did. He's separating himself from those who do not believe. You don't believe. You don't understand. So you go. And I'll come when the time is right. See, disbelief leads to compromise. Compromise is the way of the world. But it is not the way of Jesus. Right? The Bible tells us, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We'll be talking more about discernment next week. But this is, that's the way of God. Compromise is not the way of Jesus. He's not going to compromise. He's not going to compromise with his own family. He's not going to compromise with the world. He's not going to compromise with the disciples. If they have the wrong idea of who he is, he's going to stand firm in the truth And he's going to tell you, just go on. He sends them packing. He tells his brothers, be gone. (laughs) Right? You go up to the feast, I'll come when it's the right time. What is Jesus doing here? And this is important. This is one of the things you need to take away from what we're talking about this morning. Right? One of the things, of course, is about unbelief and disbelief. But one of the other things that you need to understand about what Jesus is telling them here is that Jesus is living out the truth that God's timing is an important expression of God's will. Right? Something may be in God's will. For example, it may be God's will for Jesus to go to Judea, to Jerusalem. Obviously it was. But it wasn't the right timing yet for him to go. So timing is an important expression of God's will. They work together. You can't be saying that you're following God's will and yet you're paying no attention to, to the right time to God's timing. Because then you get ahead of God's will. Right? It may be God's will for you to do something, but if you rush ahead and run into it when it wasn't your time for you to step through that door yet, that's going to cause issues. That's going to cause problems. The two work together. Timing is an important expression of God's will. His will and His timing are perfect. It's not about our timing. It's not about our desires. It's about us waiting on the Lord. Which is difficult for us sometimes. Sometimes we understand perfectly what God's will is, and as soon as we understand what God's will is, we want to rush off and do it. But God says, no, no, it's not the time yet. Yes, that's my will, but that's not the time yet. The two work together, wait until the right time. It wasn't time for Jesus to go up and show himself in the way that his brothers wanted. Even and, and, And then they weren't even sincere anyway in what they asked. They were mocking him. But it wasn't time for him to do that. He understood that he was going to have to go and his death and his resurrection is basically what they're asking him to do. They don't understand that, but he does. 
He's like, it's not time for that yet. There will be a time for that. I am going to go and do that when it is the right time. And many will believe because of it. So we need to be, we ourselves need to be in his will and his timing just as Jesus was. But the other thing that he's telling his brothers what having to do with the unbelief and the disbelief is this. He's like, hey, guys, careful. Your hypocrisy is showing. Right? You might want to zip it up. I can see your hypocrisy. What do you mean by that? Right? Your selfishly worldly desires, he's telling them, are very apparent. Right? Who you serve is very apparent. And it's not God. Why is it hypocritical? Because they were willing to go up to Jerusalem and worship God. We're going to go to the feast and worship God. But yet God was right in front of them and they didn't believe. So what Jesus is telling them is, listen, hey, your hypocrisy is showing. You want to go up and play religion, but the true God's standing right in front of you and you don't even accept him. I know who you're serving. You're the, you are of your father, the devil. He could have just come out and said that. He says that in the next chapter, in John chapter 8, right? You are of your father, the devil. He could have told his brothers that. Who you're actually serving here? You think you're serving God. I'm telling you, you're not serving God right now. You're serving your father, the devil. I can see it. It's plain as day. So you go ahead. You go up to the feast. You go up to Jerusalem and worship God. You've actually denied him because you've denied me. So Jesus' refusal to bend to their will was a rebuke of their intentions. Their intentions weren't honorable. Jesus rebuked them. But he didn't do it in a straight out, I rebuke you type of way. He just said, no, it's not the right time for me to go up there. Because I understand God's will and I understand God's timing. I understand that you're not actually serving God. So you can go up there anytime you want. But I'm going to stay back. Because I'm following the Father. Jesus' refusal to bend to their will was a rebuke of their intentions. And if you're wondering what Jesus meant when he said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil, that's what he meant. What did, I mean, we look through the Gospel of John and we're like, when did Jesus ever, you know, when did Jesus ever testify to the world that his works are evil? Well, I don't remember anything major that we've gone through here so far. A lot of stuff happened that's not written in the Gospel of John, but here's the truth about that. Anytime Jesus stands firm on the truth of the Word of God, since he is the Word of God, and he's saying he stands truth on God's word and stands firm and refuses to compromise, refuses to bend to the will of man. He's testifying that their works are evil. Even if he's not coming out and like he does with the Pharisees, right? You whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers, right? We went and saw The Chosen season four, episodes one through three, right? And then episode three, he's just like cursing out the Pharisees. You know, you're straining a gnat, but you're swallowing a camel. He's just red in the face. He's yelling at him. Even if he's not doing that, even if he's speaking calmly to his brothers and he's saying, listen, 
it is, you know, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What's he doing? He's rebuking them. But more than that, he is testifying in that statement that the world's works are evil. Your works are evil. That's what he's telling his brothers. Whether they understood it or not, they understood it or not, it's a different question. But he's telling them, your works are evil because they are not the works of God. It's not the will of God. So your works are evil. And he's telling them the world can't hate you, though, because you're of the world. But it hates me. Because whenever I open my mouth, I'm testifying against the evil that's in this world. Which is why the Jews in Judea want to kill him. Because he said he was the, you know, the bread who came down from heaven. He was, is the son of God. He is the son of man. You know, that's why they want to kill him. Because just in those simple truthful statements, he's testifying against the evil works of the world. Right? By standing in the truth and by speaking the truth and by refusing to conform and compromise to the ways of the world, even to the demands of his own family, Jesus testifies that the works of the world are evil. Because the works of the world stand in opposition to the word of God. The works of the world stand in opposition to Jesus. What does that mean for us? But one thing is, is that we cannot be, live, have faith, walk in a relationship with Jesus if we have unbelief or disbelief. How hard is it going to be? It's hard enough anyway to have a relationship with Jesus in the world that we live in today who, like the brothers of Jesus, is going to just mock you for your faith. It's hard enough as it is anyway, but then for us to have any sort of unbelief, like, like ah, I, just don't, I, don't, I just don't believe that, or disbelief, the facts are right out in front of you about who Jesus is, well, I just don't accept that. That just makes it more difficult, incredibly more difficult, because when Jesus puts the truth in front of you, he's going to tell you pretty much what he told his brothers. You aren't doing the will of God. You don't understand the will of God. So we don't, so don't be rebellious, right? Don't be prideful. Don't be stubborn. Don't be obstinate. Don't allow your unbelief or your disbelief to keep you from the blessings that God has for you. Imagine the blessings his, brother could have, his brothers could have had had they accepted Jesus. Right, we're like six months from the crucifixion of Jesus at this point in the Gospel of John, right? Six months they go on with unbelief and disbelief in their faith in their brother, that's six months of blessings they could have had by serving Jesus. And they rejected that. They turned their back on that because of unbelief and because of disbelief. Don't allow your unbelief or your disbelief to keep you from the blessings that God has for you. Don't look into the face of God and refuse to see his glory. Or refuse to see the hope that's found in Christ. Right? Don't try to bend him to your will. Don't be like the crowd. Hey, we want to take you and make you king. We got a throne we made for you. Come sit in our throne. Don't try to do those things. Don't try to bend him to your will. Don't refuse his presence in your life. Don't do those things. And just continue to remember that God's timing is an important expression of his will. 
So as we seek to follow God and to do his will, we also have to do it within his timing and not get ahead. And don't let others pull us ahead. And don't let their excitement, even if it's your own family or your friends, say, hey, hey, we need to go do this. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. We'll be like, no, it's, is, it, is it the right time to do it yet? Right? Yes, I understand that that's God's will for me. I believe it 100%. But is it time to do that yet? Make sure we understand both his will and his timing. And then just remember this, the one thing Jesus told Satan and the one thing that he really is trying to his brothers to understand is this, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. When we deal with unbelief, when we deal with disbelief, when we're dealing with our own desires and our own motives ahead of God's will and God's timing, we're not serving God first. We're serving another God, usually a God of self. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that you just help us apply this and work this out in our lives, and help us understand the reality and the truth of this word, Lord, which is there's a lot of unbelief and disbelief in this world. There's a lot of people who claim to walk with Christ who will even walk alongside us, but might actually be leading us astray because they aren't doing the will of God. They're doing their own will. And Lord, I pray that we have the discernment to understand the difference. The discernment to follow correctly the truth of the word, to understand who Jesus is and his plans for our life and to apply that into our lives and follow that, to stand true to to the word and to not conform to the world, no matter how tempting it may be. Lord, pray let us not get ahead of God's will and God's timing for what he wants to do in our lives and through us. I pray, Lord, that we can continue to be a light and point people to the hope that is found in Christ Jesus. I thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.